Hey everybody, welcome to the metaverse. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you're live here on the Disrupt TV show. We're gonna do some quick introductions in the uh, green room and uh, definitely not talk about what happened this week. Now, um, lots of stuff going on this week, lots of excitement, but uh, we've got three awesome guests. We're super excited to have them here. And more importantly, uh, we'll, we'll do some or intros in reverse order. I'm gonna ask you where you're calling in from and what you're talking about. So we're stuck with John, Alec, and then go to David. So go ahead. John. Hey, everybody. John Wester. I'm calling from Pure, Michigan, which Ray will hold up a map for soon and show you where I live. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about the metaverse. We've all been hearing a lot about it. So I'm going to throw my two cents in. Awesome. All right. Alec. Hey, everybody. I'm Alec Ross, and I'm calling in from Baltimore, Maryland. And I'll be talking about the raging 2020s, countries, people, companies, and the fight for our future. Woo, little book there, book plug up there. All right, cool. David, what are we talking about? Where are you calling in from? Yeah, I'm calling in from Sedona, Arizona, talking about the new world of remote and hybrid work that is the new normal and the emotional side of the workplace. Wow, this is exciting. Well, hey, we're going to find out more. We're going to kick it off soon. And uh, El, please do the honors. So, All right, three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupt, everybody, I keep saying Disrupting Digital, your last book. Everybody wants to rule the world, surviving and thriving in a world of digital giants. He's a regular television, business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, NBC, and Wall Street Journal. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the Shop TV. Hey, thanks a lot. And I'm honored and privileged here to be here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Amazon is behind. I've been waiting for my copy for months. Um, executives around the world must pay attention and he often pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. Um, and when he's not keynoting or leading an event at Salesforce or speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg, um, He's posting insightful analyses, often about this show on ZDNet. So, um, but yeah, but it's not about us, as we often talk about. It's about our awesome guests. Who do we have to kick it off today, Val? It's an honor and a privilege for us to have Alec Ross. He's one of the world's leading experts on innovation. Author of New York Times bestselling The Industries of the Future, Alec is currently a distinguished visiting professor at the University of Bologna Business School and a board partner at Amplo, a global venture capital firm. Alex, uh, Alec was a distinguished senior fellow at John Hopkins University and senior fellow at the Columbia University okay. School of International Public Affairs. I knew you would give you a hoo-hoo for that one. During the Obama administration, Alex served as senior advisor for innovation uh, to the Secretary of State to help modernize the practice of diplomacy and advance America's foreign policy interest. Alec also served as the convener of the Technology and Media Policy Committee on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and on uh, Obama-Biden presidential transition team. Alec is the author of a new book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future, which is about the collision that has taken place at the intersection of government, business, and citizens. His prior book, The Industries of the Future, has been translated into 24 languages and has been bestseller on five continents. He's a must-follow on Twitter at Alec J. Ross, R-O-S-S. -S. Welcome, Alec, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. This is going to be fun. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. It is. We're super excited to have you. And uh, one of the interesting things is like, I mean, you wrote a book about the raging 2020s. The 2020s didn't kick off the way we thought we were. We're all talking about, hey, it's, the 2020s, awesome. But you know what? There's a lot of interesting insights in there. And you know what? It's actually all panning out to be true in a very, very interesting way. What inspired you to write the book? And really what caused you to say, hey, we got to do this now. And there's some really interesting points to build upon many of the concepts from the last book. Yeah, look, what drove me to write this book was a question. Is is this decade going to finish up with the world looking more like Mad Max or more like <laughs> Star Trek? I mean, Mad Max or Star Trek, but a more utopian future or a more dystopian future? And I've spent the last handful of years studying basically that question. And the 2020s have gotten off to a, kind of a 
tricky start with a global pandemic and with political violence. And sort of the conclusion that I came to is whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek is, is entirely up to us. And so I wrote the book to sort of lay out some scenarios for us. Uh, you know, there's a, it, there's a dual connotation to raging. Uh, you could have the pessimistic uh, lens. Um, I have an 18 year old who's a freshman in college and she thinks the future is gonna be amazing. So uh, she's, it's going to be fantastic. So the opposite uh, uh, connotation to raging. Uh, uh, so uh, what, what, what is your thought in terms of, uh, you know, uh, projecting the next decade? Do you have an optimistic point of view uh, in terms of uh, your research and your, your, your experience? Yeah. So first, thanks for pointing out that dual connotation. And I've got a 19-year-old son and just the word oh. raging. The word raging to my 19 year old is an implicit positive. It's like an it's like a great it's raging. Party. Let's go. Raging. Yeah, it's yeah like woohoo. Um, but you know, for a lot of the sort of the older you get, the more that the more you sort of get clenched up when you hear the word raging. <laughs> the God's honest truth is it is an optimistic book. I think look, only optimists change the world. Yes. Only op only optimists change the world. And there's a difference. You can be optimistic and realist. So I'm an optimistic realist. I do believe we can shape the future in a much more positive way, but we can't do, we can't be we can't be passive about it. And I do think that part of what's holding us back, part of what is producing some of the negative rage right now is this almost outrage competition that seems to take place so often. It's like, who can be the more pissed off and the more witty about yeah. being pissed off? Like there's a whole, this seems to define a lot of journalism and a lot of social media right now. And I try to provide a little bit of a counter narrative to that. You know, there have been times of incredible destruction in the past, but it makes me recall the words of an artist, Pablo Picasso, who I think understood innovation as well as any technologist who said every act of creation begins with an act of destruction. Yep. And so I think, I hope that coming out of the destruction of some of what we've seen at the beginning of the 2020s, it gives us an opportunity to rewrite our social contract a little bit, to, to not just be in cruise control, but to think headed in a single direction, but to think about the direction we want to head in, to recognize that we have agency what the future looks like is actually up to us. We are protagonists in this. We aren't in the back of the car. We're driving the car. And so given that, we can and we should be up. And we can and we should be optimistic. I love how the book starts off. You talk about companies change our lives. The state takes down companies and the people takes down the state and there's a cycle that's in place. And what we've seen over the last, you know, I've been writing a book about digital giants and duopolies, right? That's my last book uh, that Wala that was talking about. And it's, it's weird. You, individuals have so much power if they want to now and companies have so much power and the state has so much power. And, and the question is like, where are these battle lines going? And, and you set up the framework and I think it'd be good for people to start understanding, like, what is that that you're trying to talk about in that contract that's being rewritten, that's being reshaped as well? Sure. It's an equilibrium. We all want an equilibrium. So we, we don't want, we want companies to do what they do best. We want yep. governments to do what they should be doing and do best. And then at the end of the day, we want democratic consent. We want all of this to flow from the will of the people. Let me geek out just a little bit on history for like 30 seconds. Please, so, please. So this reminds me of a period from 1800 to 1840 when technology wildly reshaped the world. And we had this thing called industrialization where labor work went from farm to factory. But for 40 years, we didn't really rewrite our social contract. This was the industrialization of the Charles Dickens novels and 11 year olds losing their hands in the factories. What did that what did that lead to? It led to the largest wave of revolutions in history. It led to ideological movements like commun like communism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. Yep. But yep. what we did, Ray, and what we did, Bala, is alongside all of this technological innovation, we innovated with our ideas. So we said, you know what? Yes, you can work in the factory, but we're going to create the world's first ever child labor law. Instead of 11-year-olds, we're going to have 16-year-olds. We're going to create the world's first ever minimum wage. 
we're going to create this concept, which has only been around for 150 years, guys, called a weekend, where instead <laughs> of just having Sunday off to go to church, you get two days off, a concept called a pension. Hey, work in that factory for 25 or 30 years, and at the end of it, you're going to get this thing called a pension. All of these were, were intellectual innovations. But here's the thing. Vala's got, uh, did you say an 18-year-old Vala? Yeah. I've got a 19-year-old. Your 18-year-old, my 19-year-old, they're most likely not going to get pensions, right? Yeah, they're not no. going to have. They're not going to have a single employer right. for thir for 30 years. Right. Nope. And, and so the, but if you think about it, a lot of those things from the 19th century are still the intellectual base of keeping everything in equilibrium. But Vala's 18-year-old and my 19-year-old aren't going to get pensions. So we need to take our intellectual movements from this 19th century industrialization mindset into a mindset oriented toward the 2020s. We need to be creative and imagine and invent the reality of a technology-rich, knowledge-based economy as opposed to an industrial economy. Absolutely. And I look forward to more innovation in labor space because we want to reinvent ourselves and have these you know, incredible introductions like the weekend and minimum wage and, and, and age limit and so on and so forth as we think about the future. Now, thankfully, my 18-year-old has Coinbase and she's trading on about 30 different tokens, coins. So, yeah. so I'm like, go, go. <laughs> my, my, my son is, my son is, is Mr. Robin Hood. So oh, I get right, it. Right. Yeah, my, awesome. look, my, my son is Mr. Robin Hood. These kids are off to the races. They're like, yeah, I'm so... Congratulations for your success, Dad. But you know, I'm off to the races. Yeah, right, 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 right. Oh We're going God. to the digital future. She's, We're going to live in. She's leaving me in the dust. Um, in fact, she's on the blockchain club at Bentley University, and the amount of insights I get, early insights before the tokens even make it to Coinbase, is pretty phenomenal. But that's a whole other show. Uh, but, but but I'm telling you, we're in good hands. Uh, yes. And I hope that my daughter and your son and and and. Uh, you know, students get to read your book because you do inject optimism and you guide them in a way that I think I want my children to be guided in the future. A little bit of history lesson. You talked about the mid 1800s. Let's go to uh, a little bit uh, after mid 1900, about 1970, I believe. I think it's about 51 years ago, the seminal moment in business where Milton Friedman wrote an essay in New York Times magazine entitled The Social Responsibility of Businesses to Increase Its Profits. And this doctrine uh, precipitated a whole new era of short-termism, uh, erosion of protection of employees, environment. And, uh, and uh, some of the rage may be that companies really uh, adopted that doctrine in a big way. My Twitter feed, just in the last week, 400 wealthiest U.S. billionaires paid an average income tax rate of 8%. That's, that's less than teachers. Uh, and firefighters. You actually mentioned in one of your speeches, our barista had paid more taxes than the entire company of Starbucks. That's right. Which is mind-numbing to think about. Uh, today, we announced 4.6% unemployment rate, but only 61% of the workforce is participating. So there's this talk about the great resignation because there's about 11 million open jobs. I think it's the most open jobs we've had in, in recent history. And the richest 1% of human beings produce over 86 times more carbon emissions uh, then the poorest 50%. This is projections by 2030. And the COP26 event is talking about all this. So as you read social media and you read these stats, I could imagine it could create some rage. It uh, does. Because the inequality is is just widening in, in, in enormous ways. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So first of all, full disclosure, I'm a capitalist. I believe I believe that capitalism is what works best for these animals called human beings. We are not ants. You know, we are hardwired for incentives, whether it's an incentive for love, for money, for fame, for power. By virtue of being human, we are governed by incentives. And I believe that capitalism is the economic form that 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 draws out the most from us. That said, capitalism isn't just one one thing. It is it can't and shouldn't just be the Milton Friedman-esque idea that if you earn one dollar, one dollar, every single dollar has to go to shareholders. Um, and 
the some of the data that you gave, um, I think, really draws that out. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another piece. If you go back, um, if you go back 40 years, uh, if economic inequality had stayed at the same from the time that I was in third grade to today, it would mean that 50 trillion, trillion with a T, 50 trillion dollars would have gone to workers at the 90th percentile in the U.S. or below. That's $1,100 per month per worker. Now think about how much less rage there would be if there were $1,100 per month per worker earning at that level. I, I'm not one of those people, I gotta say, I, I don't think every billionaire is a policy failure. You know, I am actually not in favor of dragging these guys into the square and hanging them up in a noose. I don't. But what I do think is wrong is when a single FedEx driver pays more in federal taxes than Federal Express. I do think it's wrong when a single 17-year-old barista making minimum wage pays less in federal taxes than Starbucks. And I'm going to put the I into this. I'm going to own up to this. I think it's wrong that me, that I probably pay less as a percentage of my income in federal taxes than my 20-something-year-old research assistants. Yeah. Now, yeah, because my because the money sure. I make, Vala, is, yeah. is a function of the appreciation yeah. of my assets as opposed to what gets direct deposited in my accounts every two weeks. Yeah. All of this is legal. FedEx is not breaking the law. Starbucks is not breaking the law. I'm not breaking the law. What we do have to do, though, is we've got to create a little bit more equilibrium. And this isn't about raising taxes. All of us could, 99% of America could pay less taxes. It's, it's about changing some of the taxes to create a, a global minimum tax. It's about, it's about taking the race Sorry, from a, the bottom. A global minimum tax is what you yes. said? Yes. The OECD is working on this, right? That's exactly right. So right now, people pay 0% taxes because if you have the lawyers and the accountants, you just offshore everything. But I love you know? Dublin, Ireland. Come on. <laughs> Don't take me out of my Dublin, Ireland you know, environment. I mean, no, but I think OECD is proposing a 15% minimum. And it that's right. With like, some exception. Like it's, it's a lot. No, it's lower than the United States. 15% yeah. is lower than the United yeah. States. So this doesn't hurt a single American uh, in terms of what real Americans. But what it does is it says, yes, you cannot take this company of yours and headquarter it in the Canary Islands. You cannot put it in the Caymans. Oh, Tenerife gonna... is a great vacation spot. Oh, yeah. What are you talking about? No, but hey, look, look. I'm a free market capitalist. I, I do agree with some of your ideas here, and I, I, we can vehemently disagree on some of the other ones. But I think there is um, some really interesting shifts that are going on, right? In terms of like, you know, how how that distribution occurs, how people see opportunity, where people feel like those opportunities are being given, and and I, I think you know it, it's good to have an opportunistic view. I mean, if we really truly get from here to the start. Star Trek economy, like, how does that happen? Like, you know, no one ever tells us, you know, like, we, you know, we, we never get the, the story on, you know, what wars were fought to get to the point where I could just pursue my happiness and people pay for everything. Right. So, so there's a lot of interesting, you know, a lot of interesting things. And when we get to John and, and the world of the metaverse, maybe that's where it happens, right? Your UBI occurs somewhere. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> something else happens somewhere else, right? You know, we make money in the creator economy and, and a lot of these awesome things could happen. So, but, but hey, I wanted to touch upon something really interesting. You had a very interesting stat here um, that you've traveled to more than 100 out of 196 countries. And I think that global perspective is really important because how people work, how people act, how people think, like how, what people's values, what they, what they cherish. I mean, that's really, really important. So how did that really shape your perception of us uh, in the US and, and what we might take for granted or not take for granted or understand our perception around the world? Yeah, look, I grew up a public school kid from the coal-filled hills of West Virginia and then traveling to more than 100 of the world's 196 countries. Obviously, it changed my view of things. And I would say overwhelmingly positively, because first of all, I see a lot of what has benefited the United States in decades past is now spreading around the world. Global life expectancy just during my life has gone from 58 to 72. Uh, that means that there are more markets around the globe and there's yep. more wealth and there's more well-being around the world. So I, I'm one of those people who I actually push back strongly against the idea that globalization is a negative thing. I think mm -hmm. the people who think that globalization is negative are taking a very insular view and they're saying the 330 million, Amer 330 million Americans matter, but 8 billion people who live <laughs> elsewhere don't. 
Um, what I do say, what I do say though, is part of a takeaway for for Americans. I'll say two things. I say first of all, I think we can actually learn a lot from other countries. You know, sometimes Americans forget we were born with with one mouth and two ears, and we sometimes reverse those that ratio. I think that some of what we want to do, <laughs> right? Love it. Stronger worker protections, a more equitable distribution of capital, things like we can learn lessons from entrepreneurs in the Nordics. We can learn mm -hmm. um, if we want government to work better, Ray. I think there's a lot we can learn from Singapore and other countries about how they've organized their governmental functions. The other thing that I've learned that informs my view, which does bring some urgency um, to the writing that I do, is I'm seeing now when I think when we think about quote unquote, developing world markets. It used to be the case in the 80s and 90s and beginning of the 21st century that people would send work there because it was, quote, cheaper. Yep. Now, the labor in Taiwan and South Korea and India in Eastern Europe, it's not about it being cheaper. It's about it being equal to or better yeah. than the than the than the labor in the United States. So part of what I see uh, having traveled in more than 100 countries is the rest of the world has got this sort of hunger, this 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 real focus on it, this energy. Like if you go to Seoul, it's crazy. Uh, you know, the startup ecosystem and the and the the hunger for knowledge and development that they have. I view that as an overwhelmingly positive but it does say to me, particularly in the kinds of communities that I grew up in in West Virginia, we don't get our act together in education. We're going to be left behind by some of these folks. So there is an, there is an imperative. Yeah, how do we create those opportunities for someone in Charleston, West Virginia? And, or, and this you know, is my, fi my, my final question to you. I'm a student in you know, Professor Ross's class at the oldest university in the world. Mm -hmm. And I wanna make sure that I walk away not feeling indifference wanting to participate, having skin in the game. What do you tell your students? How do you encourage the young minds of the future? And maybe, like we said, your 19-year-old and my 18-year-old, they're already there. But what do you emphasize and re-emphasize to your students to ensure that that rage is fueled by optimism and wanting yeah. to make the world a better place? So yeah. part of it, a, a lot of it has to go with the concept of risk. For people who are young and in college, I tell them, when you get later in life, you don't regret your mistakes. You regret the, you regret the chances you didn't take. I tell totally. my students, totally. you make mistakes of commission, not of omission. omission. You know, I, it's, it makes me think of, you know, a lot of people who aren't happy with their lives, they live in this, it's sort of a gray twilight. The way that Roosevelt said it, he said, it's far better to dare mighty deeds to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that wow. knows neither victory nor defeat. So for those young folks, I tell them to live loud. Bring a little punk rock to your life. Take the big risks. I, I, I think that. failure is, is, is a synonym for, I think failure in many respects is a synonym for learning. So I just say, awesome. if you... You've got to make mistakes of commission rather than omission. I'm going to give you a lot of technical knowledge. I'm going to yeah. teach you a lot of things. But the sort of cultural and psychological approach we have to take is one that says, if the world's going to look more like Star Trek than like Mad Max, it's going to be because I shaped the world in that way. I love it. I'm going to send my kids to Bologna Business School. This is, I think I we need, need to take Professor that class, Ross, in my life. I, I, we should just go take that class and go visit. Yeah. 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 There you go. On that. Either that or you can read this. Yeah. <laughs> or read yes. The Raging Twenties. Yes. We're here with Alec yes. Ross, author of The Raging Twenty Twenties <laughs> and Distinguished Visiting Professor. You can follow him on Twitter at A-L-E-C-R-J-R-O-S-S. Thanks a lot for being on the show. This has been wonderful. Yeah, Thanks terrific. for having me, Thank guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. Congrats on a great book. Wow. That was awesome. Great advice. All right. We needed an hour on that. Yeah. You know, it's every, every one of fantastic. our guests, when we're done, we're like, we didn't have enough time. So let me quickly jump into our <laughs> next amazing guest, uh, David Hassel, CEO, co-founder of 15.5. David is a serial entrepreneur and presently founder of CEO of 15.5, a SaaS company focused on helping managers and CEOs uh, to get insight from their people 
that they need to be highly effective and to build great teams and organizations. 15.5 was named by TSR as the best HR software of 2020, and G2 recognized 15.5, the 17th fastest growing product of 2020. David formerly served as president of the San Francisco chapter of entrepreneur organization, an international network of entrepreneurs who have, uh, ha each have businesses with annual revenues in excess of $1 million. David was named by Forbes magazine, the most connected man you don't know in Silicon Valley, who was also featured by Forbes as an expert on entrepreneurship. He's been also featured on CNN, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, Wired, all the major tech and business uh, media. You can follow David on Twitter at dhassel, D-H-A-S-S-E-L-L. -L. Welcome, David, to the Shrek TV. Thank you. Great to be here, guys. Great to have you. Hey, we're really excited to have you here. I've been reading your blog post. There's one that was funny. Management by weekly check-in is the new wandering around. I mean, some great stuff you're popping out there. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, really congratulations on all the stuff that you're doing. Um, something's you. happening. Something's changing. And, and you're, you're chronicling this. This is really talking about where hybrid work is happening. And it's yes. not just the leadership. It's not just the training. It's not just the cultural rituals. Uh, let's just start there. Set the scene, uh, scene of what's going on, what everybody's feeling, but can't fully yet describe. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, I had a thesis that the kind of convergence of um, the demographic wave moving through society with these younger generations of workers with different mindsets and how they think and act and, you know, really the first truly digital native generation combined with ubiquitous technology, mobile devices that allow you to work from anywhere was going to reshape the workforce. And I thought that actually what we're experiencing right now is going to happen a lot faster than it did. Yeah. Um, COVID was the, uh, I think, the accelerant of that trend and really a secular trend that I've been tracking for, for a decade. And, and I, it, it's in a way thrown us, uh, you know, pro probably five to 10 years into the future. Um, and, and the way that it did that is actually broke a lot of beliefs. So there were, there were loads and loads of CEOs who I talked to who just didn't believe in remote or hybrid work. They said, no, we all have to be together. Remote work doesn't actually work. And then two weeks into COVID, uh, they were all saying like, oh, wow, it actually works. <laughs> they were forced <laughs> to do it. And it broke down all these belief uh, systems. What, what people didn't expect was the emotional and psychological impact uh, yeah. it was going to have on all the workers. And so now you've had all these chief, uh, chief HR officers and chief people officers who've been scrambling over the last year and a half to completely retool how they think about uh, in employee engagement, performance management, retention. Uh, I know you guys have talked about this, you know, the great attrition, which, uh, which is also the great attraction for companies who have great offers for employees, but it's also the great reshuffling. Uh, everybody, you know, so many people have woken up and said, wait a minute, maybe this isn't what I want for my life. Maybe I want to live somewhere else. Maybe I want to do a different kind of work. And so we've had this just so much turmoil. But I think, you know, most of it is really a silver lining uh, uh, in, terms of, in terms of where we're going in the future. How much of this uh, experience we've had the last 20 months in terms of a decentralized, for many, many months, digital only, and now perhaps a digital first engagement model, how much of this is permanent behavior? Do you anticipate um, that folks are gonna be in the office on average a couple times uh, a week, uh, three times a week, or not at all? I mean, this great resignation, the fact that there are 11 million yeah. open jobs, and if you are still a CEO who doesn't believe that remote work works, you're not going to be able to recruit the very best talent. Um, because many of these yeah. folks have left like San Francisco to be waterfront somewhere south at one fourth the expense and That's working right. for employers that frankly don't care where they work. Um, exactly. So talk to us about your, you know, take us down the road the next five, 10 years and what, you know, what we need to do as business leaders to really ready our companies and organizations for lasting behavior post-pandemic. Yeah, well, well, the cat's out of the bag, I think, as you as you had mentioned, you know, great talent is realizing, well, you know, if you're not going to give me an offer, someone will. I'll go yeah. live where I want to live. <laughs> right. And uh, and so uh, that if would you want to happen. Be 
<laughs> right? Um, you know, we had 50 people in an office in San Francisco before uh, when COVID happened. And uh, about a year later, there were 14 left. Um, that's how many of our team had scattered across the country. Uh, oh, no. So didn't just leave the office, left no, the city. No, left the city. Oh, yeah. My God. We had people moved to Western Colorado, to Montana, sure, uh, sure. you know, just all over. And, Clean air, um, beautiful streams right? and mountains. Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so we, you know, we were, we were a little bit ahead of the trend. We had always believed in remote work and employee choice and, you know, the, the, the benefit of having hubs where people can come together because some people do work better in offices, right? Sure. But some people like myself actually work better in a home office and visiting an office periodically. And so we, we had built our company as a remote first company with uh, you know, a 50-person office in San Francisco, another 50 in Raleigh, North Carolina, 20 people in New York, and two offices in Europe where people could convene. And I think that really is the new model. And what, you're, what I'm hearing consistently from, and, and the reason being is, as we mentioned, uh, companies have already started to recruit outside of the geographic areas. And so many of them, just in the last year and a half, because of all the turnover, now have a significant percentage of employees who are not in whatever their previous headquarters were. So even if they did want to reconvene everybody, you're going to have a percentage of the population that's now not there. And so now the challenge uh, leaders are going to have is how do we not create two different classes of citizens in our organizations? How do we not have it be that if you're coming into the office one, two, five days a week, whatever your choice is, uh, that that doesn't give you an advantage over everybody else? And I think the answer really is that you have to think about your organization as a remote first company and then bring in the hubs as collaboration spaces to give people places to work together because human contact really is really important and, and it doesn't have to be every single day. Absolutely. I was in my Salesforce office for the first time in 20 months this week. And uh, I got to tell you, feel just good? Being did it feel to, good? It felt great. It felt, it felt great, great, right? Yeah. It, I was with 5060, it was a leadership uh, event and uh, the rigor and the process of just getting access to the office scheduling shifts and unlocking, locking doors with your phone after you check in and the social distancing, the, the plastic barriers and signs. So I felt completely safe. I keep hearing every company mm -hmm. is a health company now. I actually Gosh. saw my company transform to a place where safety and healthy of the stakeholder is priority one. Uh, but That's And then great. once you get through that, I mean, you have to get tested, you have to get real time, uh, uh, but, you know, testing uh, and you, we would only be cleared when the physician said you could pass through the doors. But once you got there, we're hugging each other. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's high fiving and eating without yeah. masks for, for the day. I forgot that, you know, what we had gone through it was such a delightful experience. But now, yeah, do you want to do that commute every day? Uh, for me, it's only a couple of miles. So, yes, I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind. Works, but no, no, no. To, to be honest with you, the average adult in the U.S. pre-pandemic had 51-minute commute. So, yeah. Isn't that you, crazy? You're losing like, precious hours time. Hours and hours, yes. Yeah, hours and hours. Yes. So, yeah. uh, no worries. And, and podcasts, though. Week. Podcasts are good for those. And I yes. <laughs> They've got a special podcast room for Vala there. Though, yeah, so they I, do. I they built me a studio, so I do miss that. Yes. <laughs> So, but hey, you know, but related to that, I mean, we're, we're seeing that a lot of the folks that were hired during the last 18 months were the most likely to leave. You're seeing mm -hmm. some cases where you've got managers that aren't sure how to actually operate in this new type of environment. Um, and so what, what can we do to improve the employee-employer relationship, the manager-team relationship, right? I mean, there's, there seems to be a lot of things that are missing uh, because we've got new conditions or we've got changing conditions. Uh, and so what have you been seeing? What are you suggesting to you and your clients? Yeah, and I think the um, I think it's important to understand that there's actually a different skill set required uh, to manage effectively remotely than there was managing when you're in an office, uh, mainly because a lot of the things that you need to now do intentionally um, happen by matter of course when you're sharing space with somebody. Uh, and so, you know, making sure you have a, a, a you know, great practices of checking in on per periodic basis in a way that's not micromanaging, but but that's getting information. And so there are ways to automate that. Obviously, that's what we do. Our product is, is all focused on that, helping managers manage remotely. Um, but then there's also the, the skill set of understanding how to get a read on, on how your people are doing emotionally and psychologically. Um, you know, uh, we're not advocating that every manager should become a psychologist. That's not the point. But we actually do need better skills of 
human connection and empathy. Yes. And, and one of yep. our core values in 15.5 is cultivate relational mastery. That's never been more important because we are not in the, it's, it's, so, it's actually fascinating. In one way, we've, we've, we've lost the intimacy of being together. In another way, we're all now in each other's homes. The three of us, like we've got cameras into our houses. And I've had, I have an eight-year-old son who's he ran into an all-hands meeting, buck naked, and and you know I felt like that that guy from the BBC <laughs> interview, you know, uh, from two awesome. years ago when that was a scandal. But now I've seen that eight times now uh, in other people's houses. And so you know there is this opportunity. There's a real opportunity here, I think, for managers to get the coaching and education to be great leaders and and to understand. Uh, not just, hey, are my people getting their work done? But where do you want to go? Like, what what's important to you? Because people, you know, you'll often hear that adage, people leave managers, not companies. And mm -hmm. I think there's some truth to that. And people leave when they don't feel like they're having uh, an opportunity to grow, right? You know, certainly salary and stock and all the other things that and benefits are all very important for somebody to have as table stakes. But that's not the thing that's actually going to keep them in the end, right? Is are they working with great people on something that matters? Do they feel connected to the purpose, right? And and, and do they feel like they have an opportunity to grow and are they cared for? And, and and managers need to understand how to meet all of those needs. You're clearly a successful CEO. Your company's crushing it. And it's largely due to companies that have hired caring, skilled managers who want to continuously improve and career path and, and yes. get the best uh, outcomes uh, in terms of all the stakeholders that they touch, employees, customers, partners, communities. When you look at these incredibly uh, uh, successful, fast-growing companies that are your clients, mm -hmm. uh, that have done incredible work learning your methodology and partnering with 15.5, what's, yes. what's a common... What's common denominator in these leaders? What are some of the four or five characteristics that ex they exhibit to you where you know they're going to be successful because they clearly match the ethos of your company and your vision? And you know, as long as they follow your recipe, they are going to have success. Yeah, I, I think it starts with uh, leaders who get it, get that they, they don't have a company without their people and they don't have a company without the best people. And so, uh, common sense, common sense. Yeah. And then if, you, if you're going to, if you believe in that, then it's like, well, how do I, now we're all distributed. How do I even get a read on what's going on? So you have to implement listening technology, uh, <laughs> that's done on, a, a, you know, a, a periodic cadence, whether, you know, we, we do our engagement survey three times a year. Uh, we just had our results come out three days ago. Fascinating things. You know, some of the areas we've put in, we put attention on have improved dramatically. Some areas have declined and we need to, to, we need to listen and respond. So it's really about being responsive to understanding, uh, you know, are my people set up for success? Then it's about manager coaching and development. Uh, because again, the manager has an un, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a very high leverage point in, in, in the organization and undo, uh, what's the word, uh, losing my train of thought, but, um, but, but they have massive influence over the outcome of the employee base. So do you, are you supporting the managers and are they set up for success? The problem is historically, um, you know, you go back to the IBM days and people got great manager education, right. Mm -hmm. And it was like a big thing more historically. Uh, what would happen is someone's really, really good as an individual contributor. And then like, oh, great, that person's due for a promotion. Let's make them a manager. Not everybody should be a manager. And then and then they throw them in there without any coaching or training. Right. And so, um, you know, putting a lot of attention on uh, the coaching and development of the management layer, especially first time managers, ensuring they have, you know, again, uh, education, a good coach and the technology to support them. Absolutely. And David, just to follow up, what's the hardest thing to teach to young new managers? Uh, you know, or, or is maybe I asked the question, do you hire for EQ and train for IQ uh, or, or at least use EQ as a requirement in terms of whether you decide to promote someone? If they don't get along with people, making giving them people responsibilities just doesn't make sense. But I often see that happen. Uh, and, and, and I always wonder why they ignore the fact that this person yes. doesn't really like people. <laughs> I like the way that you rephrase the question and led it there because I think you're onto something. Uh, EQ is table stakes. Whether you think you can train for it or you find someone who's already have it, it's probably an easier path than the latter. Um, that is very important. And in fact, actually, I think Gallup had come out with some some research that said when they just surveyed 
you know, and looked at the analysis of what makes a great manager, they said something like only like 10 or 12% of the population is actually, you know, kind of innately qualified or innately right to be managers. Yeah. And so there are some characteristics that you should be looking for in advance. And if, and if someone wants to go on the path and maybe they, they're lacking in those skills, then great, but you, you have to go in with your eyes open and make sure they have the support to develop those skills. Great answer. Yeah, thank you. 100%. All right. I'm going to ask you something totally off the wall just, <laughs> okay. just because you've, you've done crazy things. Um, so, so we need a new version of Davos and you're the mm. one to go create it. And I'm asking you to go create it. I will join you to go do it. That would be great. It. Let's do yes. it in Maui, like Mai Tai. Let's do it somewhere like people yeah. want to be in an infrastructure that people can <laughs> handle, right? In a conversation, let's do it in Puerto Rico. Go help the go help folks out there, right? Like something where we can actually yeah. reshape the conversation that is much more relevant to the average individual, right? Uh, much more individual to a startup, right? Um, there's something there. I mean, like I love you, it. You don't like narrow, snowy, cold venues. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think there is, you know, what, what I will say is I think there is real power in community around a shared purpose and call, core uh, purpose with a, with a certain ethos. And you get different flavors from these different communities, whether it's Davos or, you know, TED or Summit Series or even Mai Tai, as you mentioned. And, and they all have different purposes. But I but I, yeah, I do love that. I do love that stuff. I see the power and potential in it for sure. I mean, we've interviewed so many people on Disrupt TV that we could actually create a whole network to actually go do right. that and have a really pretty interesting event. And so, you know, I'll catch up with you offline if that's something you're I'd interested in. And I'm happy to put some sweat and sweat equity and time and call the right people that can actually convene something because it would be fun. And I think we need something like that and cover employee experience cover of our, where technology is going, where the politics are happening, what's happening, economic trends and, and something fun like that. So, that David, my last question, when you think about yes. emerging technologies like machine learning and advanced mm. analytics, uh, technology, even embedded in NLP where you can detect tone and sentiment. Um, yeah. we, we had Anil Bushri, founder of Workday on our show, and he talked about all the investments they're making in not only just predictive analytics in terms of predictions on retention, predictions on, on, on recruitment efforts, but even prescribing action to, to make sure you're, you're targeting the right persona, your cultural fit, competency, so on and so forth. It was fascinating uh, discussion uh, in a pioneer in, 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 in this space, talking mm -hmm. about the importance of AI. Uh, talk yeah. to us where, as a CEO, you're thinking about your company as you build your innovation roadmap, are there certain technologies that really excite you about, you know, guiding your clientele in even a more precise, intelligent, personalized manner that you do today? Yeah, well, I think technology always best when it augments our uh, our own kind of, uh, you know, ethical constructs and our and, and, and our intuition and those kinds of things where we're, sure. we're actually, you know, building technology that almost gives us superhuman abilities, but it's still us making the decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be careful um, with with some of the AI and ML of how it's designed and who it's designed by, because you don't want to you don't want those things to introduce uh, and amplify existing bias. Sure. So um, but but I think there's huge potential for those things for sure. Terrific. Terrific. Now, I just recently wrote about uh, the importance of responsible AI and um, how you mature your practice and ethical and humane use of software is, is going to be a challenge and an opportunity for all companies for the next decade, yes. for sure. Ray, this is wonderful. We're here with David Hassel, CEO and co-founder of 15.5. Follow him on Twitter. We might go do something cool together at D-H-A-S-S-E-L-L. -L. Let me know. I definitely will follow up with you. So um, thank you so thanks, much for being on the show. Great. Thanks for pioneering. Thanks, Take care. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much. Uh, Pioneer lightning CEO. Fast. Lightning fast. Who yeah. do we have next that's lightning fast? Oh, my God. I mean, I, this, I, this, this has been awesome. <laughs> I'm just sitting back here. I'm just sitting back here listening to these guys, and I'm just going, ah. I've been yeah. told in the metaverse time goes a little bit slower, but I don't know. So let's, uh, let's yeah, the, the, <laughs> the dilation, the time dilation in the metaverse is is its own thing. But you know, awesome, awesome. Um, We're here great. With, uh, John Westra, virtual innovation officer. John has spent the last three decades studying emerging technologies. John was named number three uh, virtual reality influencer worldwide by Onalytica. Uh, John is a speaker, serial tech entrepreneur, currently writing Meta Republic, 
the quest for liberty in the metaverse. John's current goal is to create real and virtual communities known for being great places to work and to be connected. Today, we're going to learn uh, from John on the topics of augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, and, and this uh, term metaverse. You can follow John, a great follow on Twitter, at John underscore Westra, W-E-S-T-R-A. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Great to be here. Like I said, fabulous guests. I, uh, you know, it's 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 just fun to be here listening to your to your prior guests and and nodding my head because so much of what they have been talking about feeds directly into this metaverse conversation um, you know, that we're I'm, that we're having. I'm just beaming because we we do a fun guest like yourself, and we're so excited. It's my favorite time of Friday. It, the first it favorite hour, and as 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 Ray alluded to after our first segment. We always, uh, when we do postmortem, we're like, we need it more than an hour. <laughs> that 20 uh, minute just is a blink in the real world and perhaps even, uh, even faster in the metaverse. What is the metaverse? Uh, and please, I have an 11 year old, so, well, I was gonna say explain okay. it so that he understands, but he actually is more digital savvy than I am. So so, so he probably super, is already <laughs> uh, yeah. right. So the super simple, Super simple explanation. And people, there are a lot of people, first of all, who want to own this thing. I mean, that's that where we have to start is saying that brands and influencers and, you know, there's a lot of competition to own the metaverse. Um, the metaverse is simply all of the virtual reality and augmented physical reality that we can experience that's interconnected and allows us to utilizing head-mounted displays, be they uh, VR goggles, be they AR glasses, um, see things that we have never seen before and connect in ways that we have never connected before. But the core of it is, it's everything that's virtual reality and augmented reality that we can experience in new ways. So John, yeah, about five, seeing... six years ago, sorry, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Paul loves the metaverse. He's ready to yeah, go. Yeah. No, but, yeah. uh, because eventually, <laughs> it's exciting have, stuff. We're going to have disrupt it's TV awesome. in the metaverse, Ray. And my we're avatar gonna in... is always going to be clean shaven and handsome. <laughs> and yeah, six, well, six. I was just thinking just a minute ago, I was thinking how, you know, the next thing on, on the list is virtual Davos, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, There's that, no reason. We, we, yeah, There's no we, need to, we need to create a metaverse virtual Davos. Yeah, so that's what we do. Question is, I, I, we, I, we've been hearing Gartner for five, six years talk about digital twin and how yes. organizations, the enterprise needs to create the digital twin for better planning, better simulation, better better orchestration and, and choreography of resources. Perhaps we would be better dealing with the supply chain chaos that we're in if we had uh, better insights uh, with precision. Because the beauty of digital is, you know, once you're there, you can measure more things. Do you see an immersive experience with the with metaverse where now when you do have a digital twin of your organization, you are now have immersive experiences where you are conducting and orchestrating inside that digital twin as, as much as you do in the physical entity? Well, absolutely. I think, that, number one, anytime you have a virtual uh, digital twin, the amount of friction that you have to try new things. That was one of the comments, you know, that was made earlier um, by Alec, which is awesome. You know, he's encouraging his students to just go out there and try and fail. Well, when you're going out there and trying in a digital twin virtual version of say a building, um, you can experiment without breaking things, without, you know, disrupting employees, without, you know, all of the things that make it almost impossible to try new things from a physical infrastructure standpoint in a physical plant. So huge advantages. Just, I mean, you know, factors of 100 or 1,000 uh, in terms of cost savings and how, how quickly you can iterate, which we all know iteration is, you know, super key to, to success in anything you do. So in this digital twin environment, if I can iterate a hundred times at a thousand times less cost, yeah. why would I not do that? While maintaining business continuity, sure, sure. Absolutely. And then afterwards, then afterwards, 
uh, utilize that same digital twin technology to help me manage the physical infrastructure, whether that's logistics. If I've got uh, somebody who's a, a supply chain analyst and they are looking at that supply chain on, you know, in using AR and they're seeing that entire supply chain out in front of them and they can literally take pieces of that digital twin supply chain and move them around and see in real time what the impact is going to be. Uh, it's, <laughs> It's amazing. If I'm, if you can tell, I'm excited about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and those simulations are great, right? Because you can like visualize par values, you can do restocks, you can reset your smart contracts, you can rethink about you know your dynamic pricing levels, right? And you can start to think about, hey, what's the impact, you know, on, on a couple scenarios, like you know, maybe maybe we do give cash discounts or we pay more yeah. uh, to get supplies in place for our high margin products. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of fun Absolutely. simulations there. And I think we're just touching upon some of those use cases here, um, you know, just and and the probably a lot it's more number three cases. by the way you know in terms <laughs> of one of the top three use cases oh, yeah. uh, sim go ahead let's simulate go simulation simulation and design is my number three that's your number so, three what's number one and two training and education okay sure training sure. and education we Absolutely. saw even a couple of years ago lowe's using headsets to show craftsmen how to you know uh learn about installation optimization break sure. fits so, I, I, you know, and this is not a this is not foreign to you either. Well, I mean, Salesforce, you, you know, you guys, you guys have been on the leading edge of this stuff. Um, yeah, what's in fact, I, I grabbed a quote, um, you know, anytime, anywhere access to the training and experiences that enrich the work and the human factor of their connections. And that was out of your Ignite team. Thank you. you know, and we and, plan and, this, by the way. <laughs> I just want to no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but that's a that's a great example of any any company. And in fact, this is a big yeah. I'm a I'm a big SWAT you know strength weaknesses opportunities and threats guy. Uh, for corporations, this is this is a a big SWAT moment because one of the things that the metaverse is going to deliver is for smaller organizations that are nimble, uh, that embrace this technology because the cost of some of these things that were just, they couldn't do before is now available to them virtually. The ninjas in the business community are going to absolutely rule in the metaverse and size does not matter. Absolutely. So when we think about the layers, right? We we've been looking at this. I mean, yeah. sometime this weekend, like the team's going to get together, and we're finally going to put together our metaverse research into one coherent research paper and report. Nice. Um, Looking forward to the read. And yeah, we're, so we're thinking about like, about like you know, where 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 we are. I mean, we we look at the experience layers. I mean, there's definitely these experience layers, and there's worlds that are out there. There are definitely things that are going to happen with um, transactions, payments, and contracts, and how things get settled. There are definitely things in the Web 3.0 infrastructure that's sitting on the back end, and then we have creator economies, and we have you know people that are popping up in you know. DeFi decentralization markets that are there, right? And you know, all these things are coming together, uh, and 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 it's it's can, can be confusing, and especially in the enterprise. I mean, who do you yeah. think some of the winners are? Like, who's kind well, of ahead all, at this market? And yeah, I do think it's all, like John 1997. Radoff. Go ahead. No, I was just say first of all, John Radoff did us all an amazing favor uh, by illustrating those those seven layers because one of the biggest challenges we always have is how do we talk about this using a common set of languages, you know, language and terms and et cetera. And the metaverse is really snaky about that. So this is great. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Radoff was great. And and when he put that together, I mean, it, it started that conversation that was there. And I, I think he I think he really helped. And then as we take it to the enterprise level, it's it's a little bit different, right? But but who are some of those winners? And I know knowing that we're like in 1997 of the internet here talking about the metaverse, you know, like search engines haven't been built yet, right? You know, right. Um, yep. we haven't figured out, you know, which browser is gonna win, right? You know, like which headset, right? We get these kind of analogies that are there, but but who's leading? Who who do you see up there? Well, I think clear infrastructure winners and and really bottom of the stack, um, you have companies like uh, T-Mobile and Starlink. Yeah, we we were talking earlier. Your guests were talking about 
you know, the decentralized workforce. And, you know, that is absolutely a part of this metaverse discussion because the tools that people are starting to use and, and gaining steam with Walmart's a great example, uh, early adopter using VR headsets to onboard employees, even when those employees were at home with, you know, the COVID whole COVID thing going on, saw dramatic improvements in how quickly they could onboard people. But what we're missing with a lot of these things is how do we connect? Them? Yes. So yeah. when we yeah. see, yeah. when we see uh, organizations like T-Mobile, uh, leader in 5G, when we see Starlink, uh, another one of Elon's, you know, companies um, uh, enabling this distributed workforce to literally be anywhere. But at the same time in the metaverse, now I have that person put on a VR headset and they are now working with colleagues um, virtually in a in a room or in whatever the uh, location is as if they were there and we you know we're seeing more ripples of this now with you know the new meta rebranding and and yeah. where facebook is headed now meta with that yeah I mean, I, so I, big I, winners I, big winners in terms of infrastructure yeah. um you know i like i like the t-mobiles of the world i love 5g specifically if you want to make it a little broader 5g starlink uh, big losers, you know, cable and satellite are going to continue to, you know, because they can't offer the same connectivity for the metaverse that that wireless, you know, no wired infrastructure does. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I think about five years ago, we, none of us were talking about Zoom or TikTok. Um, and sure. so who is the next big player with some ex that creates excited ex excitement and momentum in this in this construct of metaverse i i you know i listened to mark zuckerberg give an interview this week and he said you know google doesn't own its own internet microsoft doesn't have its own internet facebook doesn't have its own internet it's just the internet so we're not going to have companies owning different metaverses and we have to work on interoperability so that you're D digital avatar can jump from an application to another one domain to another and seamlessly live in this world, not just your own little village. Um, so I thought sure. about, you know, the, the, when you, when all this movement on distributed autonomous organization, the DAO movement, the web 3.0 movement, the tokenization NFT movement, and these creators who are in this world where you don't even need marketing, like, I don't even know if we need marketing in the future. They have skin in the game. The users own a piece of the metaverse. And therefore, you know, that's the best kind of marketing you could ever have. Yeah, so and that ties in. Parts that mm -hmm. the biggest and players in metaverse may not, we may, we may not know them. There may be just a, you know, a few guys uh, funded by Andreessen Howard's working in the side that might come out of this incredible creator economy that really is not even the first inning. You're, like, yeah. you're hearing the national anthem, or you're outside <laughs> buying peanuts. I don't even think the game has started. The Blue Angels. It's have HP. Gone by. It's, H, it's HP. You know, this is that analogy. It's HP in the garage. It is. It is. It's it's HP in the garage. Amazon manufacturer. The year after have, the web was launched by Sir Tim Berners Lee. It's you know, it's not Google, the 21st search engine that came out in '98. This, this to me is really like really new. Uh, I mean, the people $69 million NFT sale is what opened all our eyes, at least my eye. And this was only what, April, May of this year. Before that, non fungible tokens, like whatever. You don't want to talk, you don't want to talk to me about crypto. I just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this tokenization is going to play a key role in this metaverse because, uh, again, it's, it's a creator economy. It's like, you know, Companies were Web 2.0. It's now, you know, it, it's owned by the people. But in any event, it's, and, it's uh, right. Yeah. And in your wheelhouse, it's metaverse as a service. Sure. 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 Yeah, it's not just software as a service. It's sure. metaverse as a service. It's, it's all of those collections of moving parts that, you know, smart people are going to put together and say, hey, you don't have to own this. You, you can rent this. You, you can, here's the tool, here's the tool set. Um, we're going to make it available and it's, you know, 49 bucks a month. Go. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's going to happen is like, we're going to walk in a meeting like this and boom, we get like a little holograph that will show up. That will be like you, John, like, Hey, what's going on? And like, we gathered around, be able to do that. We're going to see my business traverse. cards. I've seen your business cards. We're, we're going in between, traver we're going to traverse between the digital worlds and the analog worlds. And that that's kind of the exciting part, right? I mean, at any point in time on demand, you'll be able to jump in, jump out, engage, do something differently. And I, I think that's, that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, but, but, you know, but, but, I mean, what you what do you think in 2022? Are we going to get there? Like, what, what what's the big announcement other than people changing their names? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think 2022 brings us right up against all of these long-awaited expectations for Apple. Um, they are oh, yeah. going to, True. yeah, right. And we've been we've been hearing about it. We, you know, okay, do I get AR glasses? This year, next year, 2022 is really going to be a watershed, you know, moment. And, you know, one of the things that um, I'm very bullish on is the entertainment industries uh, embracing the metaverse. And that's everything from professional sports to, you know, the the classic sentiment experience that we, we've all been enjoying for however long. Um, the streaming companies, and again, you know, you all, I, you already look at companies that are working together. Uh, my, in a full disclosure, my T-Mobile subscription comes with Netflix. Uh, those things are bundled together. Netflix has already been on the acquisition, you know, train and doing things where I think we're going to have these metaverse experiences stream to to our next generation devices that allow us to be anywhere anytime enjoying the entertainment be that sports or whatever else and that's 2022 absolutely wow, wow. That's great. John, that would be the last word that, man that would be great no i just you know to be able to have even referees on, on a football field basketball court yeah wear, there you go wear the smart glasses so you're literally running with the players even better than a courtside seat which I can't afford in Boston. Celtics two seats, court sites about two grand. And, so. <laughs> and and when and when that player makes that amazing. Now I'm a major league soccer guy, and, oh, sure, and sure, sure. you, you yeah, know it's sure. so you know Revolution when that yeah. sure you know when when there's that amazing thirty year thirty yard out you know full left foot into the top back corner of the net suddenly. Not only am I seeing that from the goalie's perspective as he watches that ball sail past his fingertips, but I also have an opportunity to purchase the NFT at that moment. Unbelievable. And that and that and that and NFT immediately. And that immediately. NFT, that 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 bubble of experience yeah. is now for sale and yeah. it's completely unique and I can own it. When Brady, when Brady last week threw his 600 touchdown to Evans, Evans catches it and throws it into the stand. Then he realizes, oh, my God, this is a million-dollar football I just gave it's to a fan. a million-dollar football I just threw fan, away to a fan. Yeah. The fan was kind enough, naive enough to hand it back because immediately Sotheby said this is at least a $600,000 ball. Um, but that was a physical ball. You're right. You, all of those moments captured. And for the fantasy football uh fanatics or or soccer or, or or basketball to be able to create those micro moment nfts you know is is endless revenue stream new business well, models know, i think they could have taken the nfl players association could have taken that and uh, donated as a charity ball right there i mean you got so many opportunities there you and, go and, and, they, uh, and, and it's not right just there. take the nft of and it's not just at the professional level i mean it's it's things and i think this is one of the big consumer breakouts okay. when we're talking about the metaverse yeah. is if I have a child who's playing soccer and now instead of, you know, realistically, instead of capturing that game just, you know, on, on a, a phone or et cetera, I have a volumetric capture of that field because the cost has come down so much. Now I can relive that experience of my kid's game over and over and over whether that's a birthday party. I mean, I've got multiple 360 cameras. And for the last, you know, six years, I have been bringing them I'm to open. all of my 
family events. I'm opening up my holodeck, holodeck addiction clinics now. Uh, <laughs> we're here with John Westra, virtual innovation officer. You can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Westra. More importantly, hey, thank you so much for being here, sharing your views on the metaverse. And John, uh, you're terrific. Here. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have an awesome day, guys. Thank you. Take Thank care. You so much. See you in the green room. Ray, we need to NFT our 300th episode or our thousand. Well, let's guests. work on that. I uh, <laughs> we'll get we'll get a team on that, and uh, yeah. I don't know. We should find a charity. Let's go find some place to donate that too. Have some fun with it. So. I, I, it's 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 definitely a, a tremendous opportunity for new business models and revenue streams. Our next talking about disruption. We're going to continue this dialogue next week because we have one of the foremost authorities on both business disruption and personal disruption with our first guest, Whitney Johnson, founder and CEO at Disruption Advisors, one of the Thinkers 50 longtime participant. And, uh, and our first guest on Disrupt TV five and a half years ago. So we're close to 800 interviews. Whitney was our first guest. Uh, she'll always have a special place in our hearts because of that. Um, because back then we only had Three viewers, Ray, me, and the guest. <laughs> and some, some person on Meerkat, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And now it's like 50,000. So Pat White, CEO of Bitwave. And Ooh, that was great. Stein Greenberg, author of Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Ooh. Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. So get your popcorn, fasten your seatbelt. Uh, episode 256 is going to be amazing next week. Ray, closing thoughts on the raging 2020s. Uh, the uh, the great re resignation and how skilled managers play a key role in retaining talent and uh, the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're at the crux of the next wave. We're not sure what it looks like. We're trying to describe it. We're seeing it in different ways from how we work, where we work, uh, what we do, uh, what people are passionate about, how they're able to live their lives, how they want to. People are taking more personal control. Uh, people are rejecting um, authoritarianism in different ways. People are thinking about what's going on next with technologies. Uh, the metaverse is another way to kind of free us up uh, into new worlds and new opportunities. I'm bullish. I, I'm really bullish about the next decade. And I think, you know, Alex, right? I mean, we, we're watching too much dystopia. TV that does it's great for Netflix for the last 18 months but hey you know I mean the life life is a lot more optimistic than most people believe and I think it's up to us to make it so so I love what he said at the end the future is created by the optimists uh, yeah totally you gotta be an optimist man. 100%, I, 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 <laughs> but pragmatic optimism you know yes. you, you want to be honest with yourself and everyone around you um, and if there's a need to course correct you course correct but uh, but always try to do better and, and I think he also said the the, the you know, the true enemy is indifference. You know, you have to make sure that you you participate. And if you want to see something better, get in the game, get in the game. And and, and the change starts with you. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks, Ray. <laughs> we need another hour for the show. It's just, it's hard to ask our guests to hang out with us for two hours on a Friday afternoon. If it's I Friday, know, it's it disruptive. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks. Cheers.